And now, the show that bridges the gap between faith and business. Welcome to Bottom Line Faith. On today's show, Mark Whitaker, COO of CBMC International. I don't live on just on, on faith alone anymore, right? I've seen the evidence. I've seen the evidence that God exists because statistics was against me from getting a job, against my family staying together. I tell you, God touched hearts and gave me a second chance. And if they're going through challenges in life, surrendering their life to Jesus is the most important thing that they can do. Well, hello, everyone. This is Ray Hilbert. I am your host here at Bottom Line Faith. We'd like to welcome you back to another episode of the program where the analogy we like to use here at Bottom Line Faith is we are going to lift the hood and we're going to tinker around in the engine of Christian leadership in the marketplace. If you're a regular listener, you know that we have the chance to speak with some of America's top Christians in business, in leadership, and in the marketplace who are influencing the marketplace for Christ and living out their faith on a daily basis. Well, folks, I am really excited about our guest on today's program. Some of you are going to be familiar with our guest. He's become famous for lots of reasons, but most importantly, what you need to know is This is a story of redemption. This is a story of what the devil meant for evil, God intended for good. Folks, my guest on today's program is Mark Whitaker. Mark, welcome to Bottom Line Faith. Yes, thank you for having me. I've been excited about about interviewing with you. Well, Mark, let's just cut to the real uh, point that a lot of our listeners are going to be familiar. A number of years ago, in fact, uh, in 2009, a major Hollywood motion picture was released about your part of your life story. We're going to talk about, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story today. But part of your life story was depicted in a movie that was released in 2009. Why don't you tell us the name, the title of that movie, maybe who played the, your, your role in there, and uh, w- then we'll come back and tell the backstory. What, what do we know about that? Well, the movie was uh, called, uh, came out in 2009, was called The Informant. And Matt Damon played me, and if they look up uh, Google me or look at my website, markwhitaker.com, they'll see that Matt Damon and I are identical twins, so he was a logical <laughs> choice. <laughs> and I do say that in exactly, uh, in exactly that way. Uh, there's no resemblance whatsoever. Um, uh, but he did, uh, he did play me in that movie, and it's basically a movie about a young executive. Uh, I was 32 at the time, so it's 28 years ago. I was 32 years old at the time, and I was working for one of the largest companies in the world, actually the 56th largest company on the on the Fortune 500, which means the 56th largest public company in America at the time, 32,000 employees, and I was number four ranked executive. Uh, we had a CEO who was 75 years old, a president who was 69 years old, and I was divisional president reporting right to the vice chairman, and I was 32 years old, less than half their age. Uh, when I joined that company in 1989. Well, that is a story we're going to revisit, and I'm sure you've told it hundreds if not thousands of times. So we'll hit the pause button and we'll come back to that. But let's talk a little bit about what you're doing today, that God has you in an amazing opportunity, an amazing position with CBMC International. Tell us about CBMC, uh, what the ministry does, and what your title and role are there. Let's talk about that for a moment. Yeah, CBMC is a wonderful organization, an 88-year-old uh, non-profit, 
ministry, basically founded in Chicago in 1930. So, you know, 88 years ago, I don't think there's many uh, ministries or nonprofits that are that exist almost uh, a century like uh, like we do. Uh, founded in Chicago, basically during the Depression, to help men, uh, to help men, Christian businessmen connection. So it is a men's organization, but basically to help men learn how to integrate their faith in their work. And by the, by doing that, it's equipping men to reach the men around them who don't know God. So basically to reach the lost and reach the unconvinced. And we have about 10,000 members in the United States. Uh, we're currently in 369 cities, nine cities more than we were a year ago. And we have a vision to grow into 650 cities uh, during uh, uh, during the next 10 years, almost double in the next 10 years. And we're in 94 countries outside the United States with about another 100,000 members involved outside of the U.S. Wonderful organization. How to integrate your faith and your work. Very much focus on evangelism and discipleship, one-on-one discipleship. Yeah, absolutely. And what is your title and role there with CBMC? I, t- I tell you, my, my, my title at, at CBMC, I'm the COO. I report right to the CEO. I'm the chief operating officer and also the director of field operations uh, responsible for the 369 cities that we're currently in and also responsible for the growth. And I've met CBMC through 21 years ago when I was involved with this huge scandal, the company that I mentioned that I was with, Archer Daniels Midland, commonly known as ADM. And when I was involved with that scandal, I was in the newspapers a lot because I was working with the FBI and cooperating. And someone from CBMC reached out to me, and I didn't know God at the time, and they discipled me through uh, the tool that they that CBM, that's very active in CBMC called Operation Timothy. And they discipled me through Operation Timothy, introduced me to uh, to, to God and introduced me to Jesus, and I became a Christian during that time, over 20 years ago. So CBMC's had such an impact on my life. I've been very active with it as a volunteer for, well, for the last 20 years uh, because the impact it had on my life. I'm even discipling four guys still today through Operation Timothy, but I actually joined them full-time on staff about four years ago. Oh, that's got to be exciting. I'm sure that... Uh... A uh, number of years ago, that's probably not what you would have envisioned that you'd be doing at this stage in life. That'd be my guess, anyway. Is that correct? No, it wasn't. But I tell you, even the last over the last decade, I've been COO of a cancer research. I'm a PhD biochemist uh, from Cornell, and mostly been in management most of my career at three Fortune 500 companies. And I was for the last decade, I've been COO of a biotech company involved with prostate cancer research. And uh, I'm still on the board of that company today, even after I joined uh, CBMC. And I tell you, even the impact that CBMC had on me, I, st- I saw that entire last decade uh, as, a, as a way, basically as a mission field, that there's no better place for ministry than the marketplace. And I saw that uh, even, even when I was in, you know, COO of a corporation the last decade before I joined CBMC full time. Well, that's exciting. So that that's really then a great uh, way to kind of segue back to where we kind of started this conversation. So long before you knew the Lord, long before you were involved with one of the most pro- proficient and prolific organizations in the world in discipling Christians in the marketplace and building Christians and evangelizing, you had a pre-Jesus life and in, in your career. So let, and that eventually led to a movie. So tell us, walk us through the story uh, what what was happening, what was going on, and what was it that led eventually to you 
if I've read correctly, becoming um, the highest ranking corporate executive in U.S. history to become an informant for the FBI. Is that correct? Did I understand that correctly? That's correct. Uh, the FBI still today, say 25 years later, publicly, I've done seven events for the FBI, including the Quantico FBI Academy. I was their keynote speaker recently, and they say today still it's the highest level executive ever to turn whistleblower in U.S. history. They still say today, 25 years later. All right. So walk us through how how did that come to be? How how was it that you became a whistleblower for the FBI? Walk us through that story. Well, I tell you, I joined uh, ADM, as I mentioned, in 1989 as the divisional president, uh, the fourth-ranked uh, executive, fourth-highest-ranked executive out of 32,000 employees. We were about $70 billion in revenue. I think ADM today is the 41st largest company on the Fortune 500. We were 56th largest then, so they've even grown more since that point. But, boy, I was obsessed with that life, Ray. I, I, I tell you, I thought if there's a heaven, this is it, Where I right where I was, being the fourth-ranked executive. I worked there on the app almost eight years, seven figures every year I was there with my base salary bonuses and stock options. And keep in mind, that's seven figures in 1989, heading on almost 30 years ago. My first week at work, uh, the CEO came back to my office. It was October 89, and here I am, 32 years old and fresh and young. And he comes back to my office. I'm almost a third of his age. And he said, Mark, the seven top executives each get their own Falcon 50, their own corporate jet. You're number four. He introduced me to two pilots. They took me out and showed me where the corporate jet that they assigned to me. And for those eight years, I had two pilots assigned to me and a corporate jet just for my use uh, during that time. And I know my, remember my second week of work when I was moving my family, and I ended up buying the CEO. He wanted to move to a smaller home. I ended up buying his home uh, my second week of work there, which was this 13,000 square foot house, eight car garage. And I tell you, being so full of myself, and this is an example of selfish leadership, not servant leadership that I'm describing now, before I before I knew God, mm. I ended up filling that within a couple months time, filling that eight car garage with eight cars, a Ferrari, BMWs, Mercedes. And I said, look out, Bon Jovi, it's on. I felt like a rock star mm. during that period of my life. And so... You're two weeks into the job, you've now got pilots, and you've bought this amazing home, and you're filling the eight-car garage as you've described. Uh, I, I can't imagine that you were waking up each day thinking that, A, you were going to be a part of a scandal, that you were going to be part of something that would eventually lead, lead you to imprisonment. What happened? What Walk us through that process of your journey, how you went from that excited new young executive to what transpired after that. What happened uh, during that time was, I was about two years with the company at that point before I became a whistleblower, about two and a half years. So I was getting closer to 35 years old, and I started at 32. And my wife was was watching this play out. Uh, my wife I met when she was in seventh grade, and I was in eighth grade. Uh, went to you know we were in a school band together. Went to all our proms together in high school. We were gifted students. I was senior class president. She was treasurer of her class. We were the homecoming king and queen. So you know at that stage of my life. If someone would ever told me I would have been involved with one of the largest white-collar scandals in history, I would have thought that was the craziest thing ever. I couldn't imagine doing anything that was morally or ethically wrong uh, during that stage of my life. Didn't have God in my life, but I def definitely had a, a good moral compass in that stage of my life. But my wife saw this play out, how I was, I was getting obsessed to greed and the house and the title and couldn't wait to even move up the corporate ladder further when these other CEO and, and, you know, they were heading on eight to 80 years old where I had the opportunity and likely to replace them when they retired. 
And so she saw this playing out. And one evening, it was two years with the company, and she sat me down. And she said, Mark, what's going on with your life? And I said, Ginger, what do you mean? We live in a mansion. We fly around in a corporate jet. If there's a heaven, this is it. And she said, Mark, I can tell you this is no heaven. Uh, she said, I'm really having a relationship with Jesus. And, my, and I'm really, I've surrendered my life to Jesus. And I, I can tell you, this is no heaven. She said, you're addicted to your work. You're a workaholic. You work from the minute you get up till the minute you go to bed, she said. And she said, especially the last seven months. Keep in mind, I was there about two and a half years at that point. She said, the last seven months, you're on the phone two, three, four hours a night after dinner. And, and this is when you're not traveling, so you don't spend any time with her or our three children. And I said, Ginger, I have to be on the phone at night because uh, the company, now that they trust me and I've been there a couple years, they're teaching me how to do price fixing. They've been doing it for 12 years, and they're teaching me how to do it, and they expect me to take their place someday because they're heading on 80 to 80 years old. And they've been doing it for 12 years, and I'll never forget. You know, She's a stay-at-home mom, and she says, well, what's wrong, or what is price fixing? What is that? I said, well, it's an international cartel and all these ingredients that go into all the foods around the world, the foods that your listeners would be buying on a daily basis at the grocery store. I said, we're fixing the prices of those, and the company earns an extra billion dollars a year by doing that. Not a million dollars, but a billion. She said, wow, Mark, is that legal? I said, it's not legal, but they tell me you have to do this to be in the commodity business. And for me to continue to move up, I'm going to have to be part of this. If I want to stay at this company and continue to move up the corporate ladder. And she said, boy, Mark, I don't know if I can live with this. She said, she's going to go back on her study and pray about it. I'll never forget this. November 5th, 1992. And she came back about an hour and a half after she prayed about it. And she said, Mark, what a perfect time to turn yourself in and blow the whistle on this case. I said, Ginger, I could go to jail for price fixing. It's illegal. The CEO is good friends with President Clinton. I said, he's a billionaire. They'll come after us with everything they have. It'd be the craziest thing to do to blow the, blow the whistle. She said, well, I'm telling you, Mark, I just prayed about it, but God is leading me to turn you in to the FBI to expose this case. And uh, I no, tried wait, to talk her hang out on, Hang on one second, hours. Mark. Hang on one second. I want to make sure I heard what I think I just heard. And on behalf of our listeners, are you saying that your wife actually said she was led through prayer that she was going to possibly turn you in on this issue. Is that what I heard you say? Yeah, that's correct. That's exactly what uh, that's exactly what happened. She basically the largest price fixing case in history would have never happened if it wasn't for my wife Ginger. Oh my goodness. And God led her to that. And then I told her, I said, Ginger, I, the, the company's more powerful than the government. This is a billionaire family that owns this company. That's the major shareholders of this family. So they've got resources. He went to President Clinton's on President Clinton's plane to President Nixon's funeral. That's how powerful they are. And she said, you know what, Mark? God will protect us. But she, my grandma's on $200 a week. She said her grandma, $200 a week Social Security. And she's paying as a victim these higher prices for groceries because of this price fixing of the ingredients in the foods. And she said, we can't be living in a mansion and my grandma paying for this. And we're going to expose this case and we're going to expose it today. Uh-huh. In a case that was going on for 12 years before I even joined the company, and I was only involved seven months, the case was blown the whistle really by my wife, Ginger. <laughs> I just can't even imagine in that moment. I, I know how upset I get with uh, with my wife if she turns the ball game off before it's over, so I can't imagine what that was like. <laughs> yeah, multi-hour conversation. Then what happened? 
Well, I, I tried to talk her out of it, and she, she, you know, I've known her since she's 13 years old, and I was 14, and I knew she wasn't going to change her mind. I, and she said, Mark, she'd rather be homeless than live in a house where illegal activity. We had a mansion, eight-car garage, millions of dollars stock options. You know, I was a number four executive in the 56th largest company in America with 32,000 employees and basically being groomed to replace the president, the number two. So I was going to go from divisional president to the corporate president. And basically the way the world defines success, we had everything. But my wife had met nothing. She had Jesus was becoming so strong in her life during that time when I joined ADM. As I was growing towards money being my, my God, she was having a relationship with Jesus. And her faith was growing so strongly that she wanted nothing to do with it. So within a couple hours after we talked, we're sitting four hours with the FBI. And I'm telling you, it's an interesting thing to tell the FBI you're stealing a billion dollars a year. <laughs> I mean, that phone was ringing off the hook. It reached Janet Reno, uh, William Sessions, the director of the FBI at that time, shortly before Louis Free was director. And it became the largest white-collar price-fixing case in U.S. history, started by my wife. And if you go to the museum today for the FBI, it has the equipment I wore undercover in the museum. Oh, wow. So you ended up moving from whistleblower slash informant to actually, you served time as, uh, how did that come about? You actually ended yourself up, ended up going to federal prison. How'd that happen? Yes, I did. Uh, basically, I had full immunity. When the FBI wired me up every day, Ray, they said, look, Mark, if these guys catch you, they're going to kill you. They wired me up at six o'clock every morning. They shaved my chest took microphones to my chest, had three different tape recorders, one in a briefcase, one in a special notebook, and one attached to my back with an athletic band, and elastic athletic band. And I wore and I got wired up by the FBI at 6 o'clock every morning for three years. The longest duration of anybody wear a wire in history is three years. And they wired me up. We were at 9, 10, 11 hours a day for three years. And when they wired me up, like I said, they say, Mark, if these guys catch you, they're going to kill you. So they gave me full immunity. They were so appreciative. I was only involved with something for seven months. It's been going on for 12 years. They gave me full immunity to never be charged. As long as I didn't get in my own way, as long as I shared everything with them, I had full immunity. A written agreement by the U.S. attorney out of Chicago. The problem was, and there's a documentary on my website, markwhitaker.com, and there's a 2010 Discovery Channel documentary with the four real FBI agents, all retired now. And my wife and I and the prosecutor, all the real people involved with this case. And on this documentary, the longest scene is about what I'm ready to describe right now is how I ended up going to prison because I had immunity prior to this. I'm out on the driveway at 3 in the morning during this horrific thunderstorm, blowing leaves off the driveway. I wore a wire for two years by that point, and I had another year to go. So it's 1994. Started wearing a wire in 92. Ginger heard a gas leaf blower out on the driveway during this thunderstorm. I had my microphones taped to my chest, had my tie, certain tie still on, blowing these leaves off during this horrific thunderstorm in Decatur, Illinois, where ADM's headquarters are, world headquarters. So Ginger heard the gas leaf blower. She comes running out, running out uh, on the driveway with an umbrella overhead. She said, Mark, you got to meet the FBI at 6. I said, Ginger, I know I got to meet them at 6, and it's 3 o'clock in the morning now. I've been meeting with at 6 every day for two years. I know what I got to do. And I said, Ginger, it's all your fault that I'm meeting them. All your fault. You're the one who got me in this mess. And she said, boy, Mark, you need God in your life. And I said, Ginger, why would I need God? I'm doing fine without him. 
She said, Mark, you're blowing a driveway off at three in the morning during a thunderstorm. And you don't think you need help? You need God more than ever. And then I said, Ginger, why would I need God? I'm going to be the next president of ADM. They just announced in Fortune magazine when our president retires, who's now in his 70s, I'm taking this place. I'm going from number four executive, divisional president, to the company president, which is number two executive. Why would I need God, I told her. She said, Mark, the only reason why they announced you're the next president, they don't know you're the informant. They don't know you're one wearing a wire and that they're all going to go to prison because of you. The, the, board, the board members are best friends with the CEO. His son's on the board, his nephew, his brother, his daughter. It's mostly family members on that board. They're going to come after you with everything they have. Surely you don't think you can go to work like nothing happened when they go to prison. Wow. And then she went back in that house, and I realized she's right. Then I looked at that house. Uh, we had inside riding horses, stables where the kids could ride in an inside arena during the wintertime. I mean, it was a mansion. Three golf greens, swimming pool. It's a house that, that, that you would see. I mean, it was an absolute mansion. Eight-car garage. And I just couldn't imagine after having that for seven years, I couldn't imagine life without that life. Yeah. So basically, when she went back in and I thought, she's right, I am going to get fired. I'm No way I'm going to survive this. I'm in denial that I can keep this when they learn that I'm the whistleblower and I'm going to have to testify against them. So then I thought, well, would the company give me a severance package where I could continue to make this type of living? Then I thought, well, they're not going to give me a golden parachute. I'm going to be a witness against them in a federal trial in the courts in Chicago. So then I thought, well, they just announced I'm the next president. I'll write my own severance package. I thought about they owed me about $9 million on stock options. Stock option set that I had then was five years to be exercised. I had about a year and a half. The problem was I was going to be fired and the case was going to be exposed. And they knew I was going to be an informant before that year and a half date ended. So I wasn't going to get to that exercise date to exercise those bonuses or that particular set of stock options. So I made a decision, well, I'll write the $9 million to myself, and I can prove that the company owed me that some down the road. So with a jury, we'll be sympathetic that I had to, had to get those funds early because I was going to get fired for being an informant. Mm. So I went in the next day. I wrote a $3.5 million check to myself. I wrote five checks in total over a couple-month period, which was $9 million. And I thought, boy, thank God I went to Cornell. I'm the smartest guy in the room, I thought. <laughs> And the day they learned I was the informant, the very day, they called the FBI and said, he's no white knight informant. He stole $9 million from us the same time he worked for the FBI. So basically, it was okay when I was with them. But once they learned I put them in flames, they put me in flames too. So they went to prison for the prize fixing, their international cartel, and I went to prison for the $9 million fraud. We ended up just telling on each other and all going to prison. Wow. So in all of this, Mark, did you sense, you, you know, you've got your wife. She was a, a, a representative of the Lord himself speaking into your life. Did you sense at all in, all in this time frame that God was trying to get your attention, that God was trying to turn your heart back to him? Or, or were you just going about thinking you were going to, this was all going to turn out okay? Yeah, I really did think it was going to turn out okay. And, and let me tell you what happened and, and really how I met God and how I got to the point where I surrendered my life to Jesus is that when the FBI was told about the nine million, I had full immunity prior to that. They came to my house and all four of the agents met with Ginger and I. And they said, Mark, Ginger's been telling us, the agent said, Ginger's been telling us that they, you needed to be hospitalized, that you've been having a nervous breakdown, not sleeping at night, knowing that your life was in danger for three years while you were in this wire. 
And the agent said, we should have never taken you undercover that long. Three years was way too long. But we knew if you were hospitalized or saw a doctor, a doctor would not let you wear a wire anymore because you are under pressure. And then they wouldn't get the evidence they needed. So they felt so bad that they didn't let Ginger let me see a doctor or a psychiatrist or be hospitalized, you know, for the, the breakdown, the mental breakdown that I was having. They felt so bad about that. They said, look, Mark, we can't get you immunity, but we're going to get the best plea agreement we can get for you. And they went to the U.S. attorney to describe all the things I did in this multi-billion dollar case, a billion dollars a year for 12 years and wearing a wire for three years, and that I helped you know, prove the evidence through all the tapes I made uh, to solve this case and prosecute and convict everybody involved in this case, that the prosecutor agreed to the FBI a six-month sentence, six months in a federal camp with no fence. Uh, and it was a deal of a lifetime. My lawyer called me in Chicago, and he said, Mark, a deal of a lifetime, six months in federal prison that he and the FBI agents helped, helped get from the U.S. attorney, the lead prosecutor. And then Ginger said, Mark, I beg you sign this. Let's put it behind you. Us, this is a deal of a lifetime. And I said, Ginger, you're the one that got me in this mess in the first place. I'm going to do the opposite you want me to do. And I took that plea agreement and ripped it up, threw it in a trash can, fired that lawyer on the spot. Hired several lawyers the next day and fought the case for three and a half years to get a 10-year sentence instead three years later. I was my own worst enemy every step of the way. And when I had a 10-year sentence, there's no parole in the federal system. And I thought, boy, I could have had six months. Now i got to do eight and a half years. You get 15% off your sentence for good behavior in the federal system. Parole doesn't exist since the 80s in the federal system. That's a state thing, but not in federal, not in federal cases. So I was going to have to do eight and a half years on 10, which means I would have went to prison at 41 and get out at 49. The six-month deal, I would have been out the same year I went in, in 1998. So I pulled my car in the garage, Ray, and, and I wrote a 17-page letter to Ginger before I did that and my kids, and I tried to take my own life. I tried to kill myself. I couldn't imagine going to prison for nine years. And then it was in all the newspapers about the six-month plea agreement where I threw it in the trash can about uh, how I tried to take my own life, and somebody read about it. His name's Ian Howes. CFO of a large pharmaceutical company read about it. He didn't know me and I didn't know him. And he was part of CBMC, Christian Businessmen Connection, as a volunteer along with his job. He discipled guys. He read about me, showed up at my house, and I'll never forget this. And he said, Mark, prison is going to be the beginning of your life, and you're going to find your true purpose in life with the journey you're ready to start. That was in 1997, 21 years ago. And I ran into the kitchen, told Ginger, I said, Ginger, there's somebody out on the porch that's crazier than I am. He thinks this is going to be the beginning of my life, and I'm getting ready to go to prison for nine years. And she fell to her knees, and she said, praise God. Thank God sent somebody. And she said, Mark, I've been praying for you for 10 years, and I pray you go out and listen to this man. And I went out and listened to Ian. He started discipling me through Operation Timothy, and he spent six, seven hours a week with me for seven months before I went to prison. And then my second week in prison, Chuck Colson showed up. You may know that name. Yes. Chuck Colson of White House. Uh, he was the White House counsel for President Nixon during Watergate, who went to prison in the 70s for the Watergate scandal. He showed up my second week in prison, and he kind of took off where he had more experience in the prison system than Ian. Ian was more of a CFO of a, of a pharmaceutical company. So Chuck Colson started discipling me in prison. And between Ian Howes and Chuck Colson, 
They both planted that seed that led me to Jesus three months after I met Chuck Colson, which was my third month in prison. I became a Christian at age 41, and basically the seed planted by Ian Howes and Chuck Colson. And at that point, you still had a long time ahead of you in prison. So what was that like? How did you then begin to experience the Lord had this was part of his plan for you at this point? He wants to use you. What did that look like behind those prison walls? Well, I tell you, during my quiet time that I'd look at, I'd say, I said, God, Ian Howes and Chuck Colson both told me that I find my purpose in my life. What can that be with me over eight years of prison left? What can my purpose be while I'm in here? Uh, I pray that you get me out early for some miracle to get me out early. But if not, what can my purpose be? And I looked at those Operation Timothy books that Ian House was taking me through and Chuck, Chuck Colson. And I looked at that Bible that Chuck Colson gave me, and I thought, where in the world are people more helpless and hopeless than federal prison? 700 inmates at all were thinking about suicide like I attempted before I went to prison. And I started taking these guys one by one, discipleship, just like Ian and Chuck did me through Operation Timothy, and I took 61 guys through Operation Timothy one by one, which is about a one-and-a-half-two-year program to get completely through it. 61 guys I took through it, you know, an hour or two at a time each week, each guy for nine years. And I'll tell you something, Ray, those at $20 a month for nine years after I earned two to three million a year for eight years before that, they were the most productive years of my life for federal prison. And I got out 12 years ago. Out 12 years ago. Truly, as we mentioned in the opening of the program, what the devil meant for evil, God has surely used for good, right? Yes, and I tell you, disciple those guys to help them get their GEDs, learn how to read, learn how to write. I tell you, Ray, it was the first time in my life that I was helping somebody else besides myself. And I found how rewarding it was to be a servant leader instead of the selfish leader that I was. And, I, and I, how rewarding it was to help see these people improve their life. There was no bonus, no house, no mansion, no corporate jet that was ever more rewarding than what I experienced in prison. I look back at all those years, I really became a free man when I went to prison. And I was in prison to that life of greed before prison. That was prison, the life of greed. Wow, Mark, I, we're, we're, we're going to run out of time here long before I, I wish we would. But what I'm hoping by our, our audience hearing this story, and you, you do get a chance to, you share this story all over the world, dozens and dozens and dozens of times, perhaps 100 or more times a year. Is that, is that not true? About seven or eight times a month, usually about 95 to 100 a year for the last several years. Yeah. So what I would like to do is we kind of wind down our time together. Would you be kind enough to, let's just for a moment and pause, that there's somebody listening to the program right now who's listening to this story, as I know they do across the planet. Their their jaws dropped. They, They may not have heard this story, or maybe they've seen the movie, but now they understand, you know, the inside track of this thing and the emotion and what you went through. What advice, what encouragement, what wisdom would you pass along to somebody who's listening to this right now, and maybe they're faced with uh, temptation, maybe they're trapped in prestige and power and money and those sorts of things, or maybe God's speaking to their heart to do the right thing, even though it would be the hard thing. What advice, what counsel would you have for someone who's listening right now and needs to hear wisdom and encouragement from you? What would you say? I would tell them this, that the most important decision I ever made in my life was to surrender my life to Jesus Christ on June 4th, 1998, 20 years ago. 
and God took my life from ashes to beauty. The divorce rate, if you serve five years and longer, the divorce official statistic is 99% divorce rate. No family survives it, 1%. Gender and I served eight and a half years, almost double that five for the 99%. And we're 39 years married this June, and our marriage is closer and stronger than ever. Not only did we survive, we thrived. And our children, too. I was employed the day I got out of prison. I had four different offers. And I'm sure I didn't move up as a start off as a COO of a company, but I had four promotions where I eventually became the COO. I had a, but God gave me a fresh start to start all over again 12 years ago when I got out. God turned my life to ashes and beauty, and our family is stronger for, than ever. And even the companies that we stole from, the victims of the price fixing, they won hundreds of millions of dollars back in fines. They put a trust fund together that took care of my family the nine years I was in federal prison for Ginger turning me in, a case that probably would still be going on today if it wasn't for Ginger exposing that case. And I believe that God touched the hearts of those lawyers. I don't live on just on, on faith alone anymore, Ray. I've seen the evidence. I've seen the evidence as a scientist. I've seen the evidence that God exists because statistics was against me from getting a job. Statistics was against my family staying together, and the FBI agents became my biggest supporters. Do you think they'd throw away the key and forget about me? My biggest supporters today? I tell you, God touched hearts and gave me a second chance. And if they're going through challenges in life, surrendering their life to Jesus is the most important thing that they can do. Thank you. And, and I'm, as I'm listening to this, I'm just thinking back to that moment when you had tried to end your life. And Satan was telling you all these lies and everything else. And the prayers of your wife and the wisdom that God had placed and the truth in her heart is what pulled you out of that because she had been praying that this would be the beginning of your life and not the end. And you saw it and you're living proof that redemption and hope are the most powerful words we could ever encounter. Absolutely. And we looked, if I would have signed that six-month deal, Ray, I would have came out the same greedy man that I went in. I would have not even listened to Ian Howes or Chuck Colson. My wife and I both look back, and we look and we feel adamantly this could be the case that God gave me exactly what I needed, which was nine years in prison. Because a six month sentence, I don't believe I would have got to know God. Mm. We, we we read in Scripture, He hardened Pharaoh's heart for His purpose, and just perhaps at that season in your journey, He hardened your heart to allow that pride to stick just long enough for you to tear up that six-month sentence so you could get that eight and a half years. Yeah. What I'm taking away from our conversation, Mark, is that God is in every aspect of our journey and our story, even our stupidity, even our pride, even our arrogance, even you know our, our lust and thirst for power and money and all those things. He can, in fact, use it all to His glory, but we have to come to that breaking point, and you came to that, and now look at what God's done and... and here we are today, and God's using you on a global basis to, uh, to bring about redemption. Yeah. I believe in Romans eight twenty eight. all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and live according to His purpose, that God will take the good, bad, and ugly and use it all for good if you give it to Him. Amen. And those are absolutely perfect words as we end our conversation. Mark, any last words, any thoughts, any advice that you'd like to pass along as we wind down our time together? I'd just like to pass along that like Ian Howells reached out to me 21 years ago. We don't have to look too far to look at somebody in need who don't know God. Maybe someone in your own home, like I was for my wife. Maybe a neighbor across the street. Maybe someone across the hall 
in your in your company as an you know employed by the same business that you work at. And I just praise God. I just I pray that all of us will step out like Ian does and and be used by God to really plant seeds for those who don't know God. And I believe that's what Marketplace Ministry is all about. It absolutely is. And, and Mark, you mentioned it earlier, but would you mind one more time just sharing the website where folks can learn more about your story, your journey, or perhaps even CBMC? How can, how can we learn more about your ministry? Yeah, both uh, the website for, for me and my testimony, a, a video of, a, of an actual prayer breakfast events on my website, and lots of other things, Discovery Channel, Forbes interview I did recently, and that's www.markwhitaker.com, and Whitaker is W-H-I-T-A-C-R-E. So markwhitaker.com, and then CBMC is www.cbmc.com. Christian Businessmen Connection is what CBMC stands for, and that's to really equip guys, like I described with Chuck Colson and Ian Howes, about reaching out in your sphere of influence and introducing them to Jesus. Well, Mark, thank you so much for not only taking the time to invest and share your story with us here at Bottom Line Faith, but... Thank you for the obedient path that you are now following, the incredible story and witness that you are allowing the Lord to use you to literally transform the world for Christ. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for having me, and I'll be praying for your ministry. Thank you. Thank you. Well, folks, our guest today has been Mark Whitaker. As he shared, you can learn more about his story at markwhitaker, W-H-I-T-A-C-R-E.com. And you can learn more about CBMC at their website. So, folks, we are so grateful that Mark has invested in us today. I just pray that you would be encouraged. Take the words, take the story that Mark has shared, and use this as your moment of encouragement. Check out the rest of our interviews that we have available for you at bottomlinefaith.org. Again, if you're not a subscriber, check it out. Scroll to the bottom of the page there and become a regular listener here at the program where we learn from America's top leaders about how to integrate faith into the marketplace. Until next time, I am your host here at Bottom Line Faith, Ray Hilbert. God bless, and we'll see you soon. Bottom Line Faith is brought to you by Truth at Work. If you'd like to hear about new episodes or listen to past episodes, visit us online at bottomlinefaith.org. You can also subscribe to the show through Google Play and iTunes. 